на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона Разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. Due to the upcoming international break, there's been two rounds of RPL action since we last recorded, with the usual spate of games at the weekend immediately followed by an earlier midweek round from Wednesday to Friday. During this time, Russia boss Stanislav Chichesov has also named his Russia squad for the upcoming World Cup qualifiers against Malta, Slovenia and Slovakia. We'll discuss that and answer all your questions sent in via Twitter and email. And to do so is Richard Pike. Good, good morning, everybody. How are we all? I'm good, I'm good. Like I said, morning, we're recording a slightly different date here just to accommodate all of the fixture changes and schedule changes and new differences. We're also joined this week by Hanu Trevedi. Hi guys, great to be back on and um, love the new time. It's the first time I've been on this podcast when I'm not half asleep. So, you know, it's, it's great <laughs> to be on, great time and I uh, yeah, hope you guys are well. Yeah, definitely. It's I thought we would accommodate some of the yourself in the in the totally different time zones instead of just getting those three boring Englishmen with our boring English accents on to discuss <laughs> Russian football <laughs> every single week. Now, like I mentioned, we have had two game weeks since since we last recorded, and in that time, there's been quite a lot of change in the title race at the top top of the RPL, with Zenit recording back to back wins, as well as Spartak, and a certain Lokomotiv has now actually leapfrogged. Cisco in the third place. Now, Hanu, you've been quite complimentary of Marco Nikolic and, and his work he's done at Loco so far in the in the return from the winter break. Yeah, I have, and I feel like um, I my trust in Nikolic is finally being repaired because they've won all five of their games since um, the season restarted. It's been emphatic all of their victories. They've been very well-oiled club uh, and Nikolic deserves a great great deal of credit for that because well you know he's tactically the team has looked um, formidable since the season restarted he's managed to make Franco Akamano into a serious player who is you know on form and he's playing very very well he's finally looking like the player they paid five million for which is a massive um, boost for them and then you've also got Fedor Smolov scoring goals, Adair got an assist, and at the moment it just looks like Pablo has looked phenomenal. He has looked so calming at the back. So, yeah, there's a very good um, atmosphere around the club, and I feel like they've set themselves up to get at least Europe now, or, you know, they might even get the Champions League. I think the title might be too far off, but they've done very well, and I, I hope that Lokomotiv fans have begun to realize that he actually was a great signing in that Yuri Semin would not have been able to do this at his ripe old age. No, definitely not. I think it's more so impressive as well that they've went on this run entirely without Antoshka, Anton Moranchuk, who's been still injured. And also without Dmitry Baranov, he has made his return, but has not started a game yet and is just making the odd substitute appearance, basically just to build up some... some uh, game time and match fitness, but what I really like about Nikolic is <laughs> look at look, Yuri Siomin's a legendary manager, but a lot of what he did well with Loco 
was built upon the fact that he is a club legend and, a, and an unbelievably effective man manager. Every single player in that squad just had the highest of and utmost of respect for Siomen. Nikolic is doing all of this on, on tactical nous, and he understood that the way Lokomotiv were performing in the Champions League against far better sides was completely different to the way that they were being quite turgid with the possession style, not really being effective with the ball, passing around a lot on the penalty area and not penetrating enough. So he's totally changed it up. He's he's now playing like a 4-4-D with Maximuk and Krakowiak and Kulikov usually in a three in midfield with Rifad Jamaletinov in the 10 role and then Lysakovic and Kamano, as you said, um, basically just running at players up top and they sit deep soak up all the pressure and then counter-attack at the highest of pace. And it really, really suits this Lokomotiv side, especially Lasakovic and Kamano up top. That two, that switch from them two, from Ede and Smolov in the, earlier in the season has really changed their game. And, and I, I think Smolov's been very, very good as well since the break. But this style of football really suits Lokomotiv more. Uh, Richard, what do you think about uh, Vitaly Lasakovic? Are you impressed by the Belarusian up top? Yeah, he's he's impressed me a lot. Um, and him and him and Kamano since the restart, like you said, James, have been excellent. Um, you know, I, I was a fan of Lisakovic before the winter break, and you know, me and and yourself as well, and probably a lot of us at RFN thought that you know he was not getting as many minutes as what he should get. You know, I thought you know I think Nikolic could have used him a bit more before the break, but to Nikolic's credit, he's now integrating him into the team and is we're seeing um, the rewards being reaped now um, from that and yeah I'd, I'd like to echo Hannah's thoughts I've been very very impressed with um, with Lokomotiv in general since the break you know they're getting a tune out of Kamano now which is good because he was a good player you know um, two years ago in France you know he was being linked with the likes of Liverpool and Tottenham if you if you believe the reports so this guy obviously you know, was a good player. And maybe it just took a little bit of time. Maybe, you know, we have to remember as well when players move clubs, it sometimes takes them four, five, six months to get into the groove, you know, adapt to the new surroundings, you know, new tactics, new formation, new country sometimes as well. So, and, you know, he's starting to do that now and he's been really impressive since the break. And yeah, like I said, I think now the ghost of Schumann has been laid to, to bed now. I think at the end of the day, I think locomotive fans now are probably accepting now that whilst you're assuming is a club legend and, you know, his success at Lokomotiv is brilliant. I think they have to, they had to move on eventually. They couldn't just keep bringing Schumann back time and time again, or, you know, eventually the succession question had to be answered sometime. And now it has been with Nikolic and I like him tactically. He's, you can tell with the way he's setting them up that, you know, this is good tactics, coaching, emphasis on throwing youth in there as well. You know, he's, he's thrown uh, Daniel Kulikov and, and uh, Maxim Mukin in midfield. And you know, um, would you know would um, would Schumann have done that? You know, I, I really applaud what Nikolic is doing um, at Lokomotiv, um, throwing um, no trust, more trust in Lisakovic as well. So yes, um, I'm really happy with um, with the way he's trusting Lisakovic more now, getting the best out of Kamano. You can see there's a plan starting to emerge now at Lokomotiv, a vision to build something long term and productive and I think I think you know Nikolic will stay there for a good few years and, and do that mm. and um, I actually think next year conf- I actually think that Lokomotiv will be a good bet to finish third and finish in the Europa League and I think that would suit them because 
they were competitive in a couple of the Champions League games this year against Atletico Madrid and in one of the games against Bayern and one of the games against Salzburg. So if you drop down to the Europa League, the level of opponent you play is less. So I think if they were to finish third and qualify for the Europa League or finish third and win the Euro- and win the Russian Cup, which is very much on, then I think the Europa League could be a good um, suitable starting point for, well, not starting point, but a good suitable building point for Nikolic going forward. And um, it will be against teams more to their level. So, yeah, very impressed with um, Lissakovic, very impressed with Nikolic for playing him as well. Yeah, certainly. I think Nikolic is a little bit of a rare transfer, uh, rare managerial appointment in recent years in Russia. If I segue slightly on to the side that Lokomotiv leapfrogged, uh, Siska have been widely reported to considering the future of a certain Viktor Goncharenka uh, and after absolutely bottle-jobbing what could have been an interesting title race, getting destroyed off everybody in the league, particularly uh, losing a massive game against Zenit 3-2. So in response to that, there's been rumours flying around that a certain Siska legend and current Croatian national team assistant manager, Avica Olic, could actually take over from Goncharenka. And once again, rumours, but it is being rumoured and it's all over Telegram, that is. He is currently flying to Moscow to to replace Goncharenka or at least join the setup there at Siska. Hanu, what, what's your thoughts on... Russian clubs, or not just Russian clubs, but football clubs in general, proclivity to constantly sign club legends like Lokomotiv used to with Semen? I despise it, to be fair. Um, a large part of the blame for starting that trend goes to my own club, who signs Zinedine Zidane, and I've, I've spoken about this before, and you know, uh, he succeeded greatly, but what people don't realise is that he spent years at the club before being signed you know made the permanent manager you know in various capacities and clubs these days have just decided that it would make sense for them to just sign really any former player they have with a coaching license in Andrea Pirlo's case no experience no experience at all and I mean we've not we've seen the Russian clubs that have signed actual managers so Marco Nikolic is is one of them he's done pretty well Domenico Tedesco is an actual manager he's done fairly well. Sergei Semak had experience coaching at Ufa. He's, you know, done well at Zenit. So he wasn't a complete amateur when he came to Zenit. Then you've also got Sandro Schwartz who's doing well. Leonid Slutsky, we know, is, is, is a great manager. And then on the opposite side, you have not only a number of clubs in Europe that have failed after signing club legends. You've got the likes of Krasnodar who've signed inexperienced managers and Murad Masai and are, are currently struggling. And Goncharenko, honestly, is, is a disappointment himself. Um, there were heavy talks before the winter break that he was going to be sacked anyway and going to be, you know, they would have a new manager in the spring. But then they beat Rostov 4-0 on the final day and he was, you know, his job was safe, which I felt was a very uh, short-sighted decision. I feel like he should have been sacked anyway and he's clearly shown that he's incapable of doing anything in the spring and he even admitted to it when he... Um, went to you know belarus for a short hiatus and if college i mean he's he's a i don't know anything about his managerial career nobody really does because he's been an assistant to vladko dalic um croatia very successful obviously on the international stage but i mean I, it doesn't fill me with confidence it, it feels like a sidestep and 
yeah i i don't i'm not really too big of a fan of the move yeah me too to be honest if if it does even happen i <laughs> when you first mentioned that it was rumored it was happening i was kind of just dumbstruck i was like what um i'd read literally just this morning that Cisco had or sources close to Cisco were claiming that they were that Roman Babayev was looking for experienced foreign managers to to replace Goncharenka and I was like, I read that and I was like yes this is exactly what Cisco need they don't need to go around the usual Russian merry-go-round of managers they don't need to go and just pick up some random club legend like Sergei Ignashevich who's under heavy heavy pressure at Torpedo Moscow and their fans despise him and want him sacked. So they take you they don't need that. They need somebody to come in and can a real coach with experience who can nurture this very promising young group of players. So it, it I, look, he's he's Croatia have been excellent of late. And he is a Cisco legend. He's got well, he played for them back in two thousand three to seven. He won the UEFA Cup and the Gazaev. He was brilliant for them, but I I I also I'm not a big fan of these types of of transfers. What Richard? What do you think on knowledge? Yeah, I'd like to just um, echo uh, both you and um, Hanu's thoughts, James. I'm I'm just a bit baffled at it, and you know, admittedly, you could argue Guardiola was the one who who kicked all this off. And don't get me wrong, that that worked. Um, Guardiola going to Barcelona and the successes enjoyed, and it really. Um, you know, was a launching pad for the brilliant managerial career that he has. But you've also got to remember, just because it's worked at one club doesn't mean it's going to work everywhere. And Guardiola also had a very good tool of players to work with. He had um, two, a very good set of players to uh, a good set of tools to work with. He had um, Messi and Messi. You know, we had Xavi and Iniesta, two of the finest midfield players on the planet, experience at the back in Puyol. So yes, whilst it worked for Guardiola, I think what a lot of fa- what a lot of clubs have done is they thought just because it works there, everyone copies it. But not all circumstances and situations are the same. And I think this is I'm expressing the similar doubts as to what you guys have about this one in a beats Olich. I'm I'm not a fan of this personally. I think Siska should have been um, taking on board some of the stuff that we saw yesterday with you know reports and I'm looking for a manager with experience in leagues like Germany and France you know um, I threw a few names around on Twitter you can look at the the thread if you want to I threw a few new, few names around and yeah and this this fixation with just appointing club legends because of who they are is I think it's baffling surely at the end of the day fans care obviously fans appreciate what these players did for the club during their playing time and that's the same at any club but at the end of the day if you want ultimately every fan will want their club to achieve the best results that they can possibly can achieve and if that means hiring someone who does not have a connection to your club then so be it you know it would never bother me at my club if we never hired an ex-former Wigan Athletic player you know if, if we hire the best coach for the job and they do the job to the best of their ability then I'm, I'm more than you know and, and if they end up being a good good move then so be it, you know. On the Goncharenko um, situation, I, I mean, I did even see some people say that I think he should be given more time at Cisco. You know, I don't think this is the right decision. They're third in the league, da 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 But Goncharenko has had four and a half years at the end of this season. You know, that is a long time to give a manager nowadays, I think. That is a long time. And, you, you know, I, I had some sympathy with him at the start because 2018-19, I had a bit of sympathy with uh, Goncharenko because he had to rebuild that squad. He had to, you know got the squad apart, rebuild it. It was, you know, the, the whole defensive line of Ignashevich and the Berezitskis retired. He lost Golovin. There was other key departures too. So he had to rebuild that squad. 
Um, and, you know, so 2018-19 was a bit of a past year, but the last two years in Europe have just been really, really poor. You know, and Cisco were top-seeded in those two in those two Europa League groups. They should have been getting through both of them, really. Um, you know, and, and that also throws in the question with Gontrenko in the 2017-18 season when Cisco reached the quarterfinals of the Europa League. Was that purely because he inherited, you know, the, the, the rumours now going around is that that was based on the back of inheriting Slutsky's team. You know, and since he's had to rebuild, the results have not been as promising. So I, I think four and a half years is a good time. And Cisco are normally a patient club with managers. So I think, I think yes, the time is right now for a clean break. But I'm not entirely convinced that at moving Olic in there as a new coach. I'd have, if they want to have a Russian speaking manager, I would have probably looked to have tried Vladimir Fedotov at Sochi. Or if they want to do something radical and go abroad, then that's what they should do. I'm, I have to admit, I'm having my reservations about Ivica Olic already. Obviously, you've got to give every coach a chance, but I don't know if this is the right thing to do. Yeah, me either. Um, for every Guardiola or Zidane, you get 10 Valeri Carpins. Um, that's just how it works. And yes, Carpins doing fine at Rostov, <laughs> but at Spartak, it was probably one of... A side that played very exciting football, but were absolutely, utterly useless and really, really poor. Um, I mean, you mentioned there, Richard the Contrarenka has been at Cisco four and a half years. It's quite depressing that that is the longest serving manager in the RPL at the minute. Uh, the only man who comes anywhere near close is, is Karpin at Rostov, who's been there for just over three years. And then not a single other manager has, and Semak, and not a single other manager aside from them three have been at the club for longer than two years, um, which just shows the, the managerial merry-go-round in Russia right now. But on... Yeah, uh, you mentioned, I mean, Hanu, you mentioned that Semak's one of these club legends who comes in and does well. Obviously, he did well at Ufa before. And talking about Zenit, uh, Zenit in the more recent games, how do you think Zenit have played in the last two since turning it, turning it around after, after that loss and draw early in the season? Um, well, I think they've been pretty impressive. Um, they've shown the they've shown the sort of uh, qualities that actually made them champions for two seasons running, and it seems like they might be on their way to a third. Um, the win against Akmat, Akmat were largely awful on that day, but you know Zenit ran riot, and then uh, again CSK sort of they CSK threw it away themselves, but but Zenit showed remarkable. Um, resilience in you know going down and then scoring a late goal and you know winning the game and I think a large part of that has been Wendell um, playing like a 20 million euro player and he's had a great impact uh, he's been everywhere he's playing like a, so not a number 10 but he's he's taken charge of the creative role that Malcolm was sort of brought in to do but he's obviously suffered with injuries so Wendell has been a more stable and a more, perhaps not as exciting, but uh, but an equally important part of the Zenit side. And he's allowed the likes of Zuba, the likes of um, Asmoon and so on to really feel free, express themselves. And I feel like if Zenit go on to win the league, which is looking likely, except, you know, maybe Spartak, who also looked great. Um, but yeah, if Zenit go on to win the league, I feel like Wendell is going to have to be credited with a large part of that. Yeah, I was really impressed by Wendell, particularly in the Cisco match. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And bear in mind that Cisco have got 
Oblyakov, Akhmatov, Vlasic in midfield, which is one of the best midfields in Russia right now, or at least will be. It's definitely one of the most promising. And Wendell's got a 92% pass completion rate from over 69 touches and 50 passes of the ball. Like That's absolutely brilliant. I, I do agree. I don't think he's quite as dynamic as Malcolm when Malcolm like really gets going. Like You can see why Malcolm was a £40 million pound player. He, he's one of very few in recent years who really can... can take a man on and just change a game like Promes, like Hulk. But Wendell's not quite at that level, but he is incredibly efficient and a very tidy and silky player. And against Siska, that goal was unbelievable. That goal was game-changing, like what you would expect from Hulk and all the rest. Richard, what do you think about Wendell? Because I know you've preferred him playing in this more attacking role rather than out wide. Yeah, I... I me me and Joel were discussing it, um, fellow FN um, writer. We were discussing it on the um, on the pod. Sorry, on our, on our chat, and um, we both agreed that in a free, we think Wendell will be really good. And I I, I think this, the the formation next summer for Zenit is set to go. I think it, a four three three could really suit them with um, with Wendell um, being the box to box player in that, and the one that gets forward and transitions from defence to to attack and um, obviously you've got Malcolm to come into the side um, so you know Sebastian Juicy's probably going to leave in the, in the summer and you know Asmoon's probably going to go as well so I actually think it, with those two foreign spots being freed up it's actually perfectly set for Zenit to get a good left-sided player and a good replace, good striking replacement for Asmoon and move to a 4-3-3 now obviously I think as well yeah, that 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 is what I will be looking to do. Um, and I was really impressed with him in that game. He absolutely he bossed Siskar's midfield. Wendell, um, you looked at the the um, you know just the just the energy he gave the team going forward. He, his touch is good. He can run with the ball. His passing's quite solid. And like I say, he looks like he's got a good shot on him from distance. So um, yeah, I was I was really really impressed with the way he played. And he's been, he's been good since about. November, December, once he was finally over his injury issues, Wendell, he was really, really good. So I think that is a one real good positive for Zenit in the running and going into next season as well. And um, I say, I think he's only going to get better in the team. So yeah, I, I've been very impressed with um, with Wendell. Um, I'm liking him more and more with every game. Yeah, likewise. Hanu, do you think that Asmoon will be, be off in the summer maybe? Yeah, I think so. Definitely going to be off in the summer. I think he's admitted the same. I think he said he wants a new challenge. I think Zenit are trying to sell him. And he's done enough at Zenit. I think it's a good time for everybody to move on. Yeah, and speaking of moving on, next is everyone's favourite side. So that was that was a really bad segue. That was, that was even worse than last week's. It's, but a, good anyway, it's a good effort. <laughs> next... <laughs> Next is everyone's favourite circus, and that's Spartak, as they beat Ural 5-1, and before that beat Dinamo Moscow in the in the one of the main Moscow derbies, and before that beat Krasnodar sitting six past them. They've kind of been resurgent by a large part in the return of Quincy Promes, who, look, Larson, Sobolev and Ponce have been banging them in all season long, two of which have got double figures in the league alone. All three of them in all competitions have already got double figures, which is quite an astounding feat for all of your strikers to, to be able to do that in the league. But Promes coming in and going into that free role that Selim Kambakayev had previously had 
has really just taken that attack to the next level. But I do personally fear that Spartak are a little bit of a glass cannon. Um, Ural are dreadful, like genuinely, absolutely dreadful. The word the weekend, there was really a spate of constant defensive errors. The midfield just offered absolutely nothing. The only real outlet was Eric Bickfalvy, as usual. But they still did threaten Spartak on numerous amounts. In the Krasnodar game and the Dinamo game, they had Alexander Maximenka to, to thank for basically getting the points as well as that electric attack. So they are very much a glass cannon right now. Um, if they continue to outscore people, then it doesn't really matter. But this is their issue every time it comes in a title race. They will push Zenit as far as they can. They'll pl- they'll batter all, a lot of the smaller sides. But then when it comes to playing Siska, playing Zenit, when it really matters, that defence just can't quite stand up. Um, I don't know if that's a little bit harsh, Richard. What do you think about Spartak in the potential title race? Yeah, I mean, I think Spartak will be kicking themselves a little bit. Those two home games against Rostov and Rubin, you know, one was before the winter break, one was just after the winter break. If they'd have gotten four points from those two games, just imagine now they'd be right on Zenit's tail, level on points with them and chasing them down, and then the pressure really would have been on Zenit for the rest of the season. Um, But in those two games, they froze, and yeah, it it could end up being costly for them. And it's a bit of a shame because, you know, I I really would have liked to have seen a Right now, both those sides neck and neck on points going for the title. It would have been it would have been ace, ace. It would have been a really good title race. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I do take your point. In some of the bigger games this season, uh, Spartak have been found out a little bit um, in both, one, especially the away game at Zenit and then away at Siska as well. Um, I mean, you could say still with Spartak that the. One of the central central defenders is Pavel Masov. Now, look, he's 20 years of age. He, he scored an unfortunate old goal against Dinamo Moscow. But I actually thought for the rest of that game, he played very, very well in the second half. He did well. And even against Ural, when he made the odd mistake, I noticed one time in the second half, he, he lost the ball twice, but then went back straight away and recovered it. And I think it's still good for, from, you know, I was still expecting Spartak to possibly bring in a defender, like maybe in the winter transfer window. So it's it's to Tedesco's credit that he's sticking with Masoff and carrying on playing him. And I think, you know, he's only going to, you know, he, he is a fullback who's had to move to central defence to play in a three. So obviously, you know, he's only 20 years of age. So I think there's, there's a patience element with Masoff, but I think he's been improving over the season. Um and yeah, I, I still think, yeah, Spartak can have that defensive frailty to them, which possibly could hold them back. But overall, I think, you know, what is encouraging is the goal scoring potential of the team is excellent. I think now in Promise and Larson have struck up a brilliant partnership right from right from Promise's return. You know, um, both of them look in, in red hot form um, and, you know, Sobolev is scoring goals again. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yes, there's still a little bit shaky in defence, but they've got the attacking weapons now to score lots of goals, create lots of chances. So, so yeah. But I think second place would be a good finish for Spartak, considering the issues Tedesco inherited to get them up to second place after just 18 months in charge, I think would be would be a remarkable achievement and um, full credit to him. Um, yeah, just, just a shame those two games either side of the winter break because I would have really loved to have seen Zenit and Spartak level on points now. That would have been a brilliant title chase. 
Yeah, definitely. But it wouldn't be a season if Spartak didn't bottle something at some point. So to, to quickly run through <laughs> the end of the title race, it's Zenit are on 48 from 23, Spartak in second with 44 from 23. And then after that, there's actually a little bit of a gap back to Lokomotiv on 40 from 23. Personally, I think they will keep their form up and probably catch up with the other two, more so than anyone else right now. But it's the race for Europe and mid-table, really, that's kind of morphed into one, where Lokomotiv, third place, 40 points, all the way back to Krasnodar, 10th place on 34 points. It's it's really tight in there, and specifically... Um, Rubin, Rostov, Dinamo, Siska, Sochi and Lokomotiv are all separated by just three points trying to get into those last European spots. Uh, Richard, if I come straight back to yourself, you, you're caught an eye with Dinamo's games at the weekend and particularly the midweek where they were 2-0 down away to Krasnodar. Uh, the defence was performing quite poorly in my opinion. They, there was quite a few risky errors. Anton Schoenen made a, a rare error leading directly to a goal. But then yeah. they youngsters seem to bail them out in the end with a brilliant comeback. Yeah, the second half was was excellent. Um you know there was there was a number of good performances in there. I, I liked the way Morrow got hold of the game in midfield in that second half. Um he, you know, his passing range was excellent. He found his um found his, his, his targets really well. And what was really interesting with Schwartz was that he, he switched it, actually switched it to a back three in the end. I mean, he, he had the luxury of be able to do that because Krasnow were a man down, even though they were 2-0 up. But he moved to a back three and actually put Morrow as a central defender, but just one who could step out the line and spray passes around. And that really was a good move because, you know, it, it obviously they had the man advantage to be able to do that. But, you know, he was then dictating play. Um, I was really impressed with Formina again. That was a lovely goal, and I'm, I'm really delighted to see him in the um, in the Spornaya squad. Um, we'll talk about that a bit later on, but I'm delighted to see him in there. It was a lovely goal that he scored, and he's been really good all season. And then just, yeah, the freshness and the energy of these young players that Sandro Schwartz has brought into the team, like um, Chu Carvin, like um, Zakayan. He's even getting a tune out of Vyacheslav Guyoff as well. Um, also, Clinton and G had a good game when he came on uh, down that down down that right side. He was putting in a number of accurate crosses. So um, yeah, it was it was fantastic to see these young players um, like Fomine, um, like Zakarian, like um, Chukavin really turn the game around for Dinamo. Um, and you know they got nine points from the return to play out of twelve in the four league games, and they won in the Russian Cup as well. So that's that. That's probably more than what they would have bargained for. Uh, they were probably looking at five, six points in those four games for the winter break. Sorry, just after the winter break, and they've got to run a games now. Four games against teams who are you know mid table or nothing to play for, the likes of or down at the bottom like Ural, Ufa. So this is a chance now for Dinamo to really rack up some points in the next few weeks. And you know, I still think personally, my opinion is is that I think. If they are going to qualify for Europe Dynamo, I think the Conference League is probably best for them. I don't quite think they're ready for Europa League or the Champions League just yet. I still think there's some bits that Schwartz needs to improve in the summer. I think the Spartak game was a bit of a reality check out the second half. Spartak were, were by far the better side against Dynamo last weekend. Um, you know, they really took control of the game and fully deserved their win. Um, so I still want to see some signings in the summer from Dynamo. I still think. Mm. If they're going to qualify for Europe Conference League, it would have to be. But even if they finish sixth, okay, it's the same position as last year, but don't make Europe. At least I'm seeing some progress, which is good. Last year, they finished sixth purely by being the best of a bad bunch. This year, you can actually see 
there's progress and the style that they're playing as well. It's not the turgid defensive football that they were playing on the Novikov. It's actually progressive, a progressive style of football built around young mm. players. So I still think that I still think they might just miss out on Europe. But if they do qualify, I think the Conference League will be ideal for them. I think the Europa League and the Champions League will be a step too far. But it is really encouraging signs seeing these young players develop on the Schwartz and just brilliant to see, just just like Nikolic, just like Slutsky at Rubin. I'm, I'm really happy to see this kind of thing. Yeah, certainly. The Dinamo's got quite an exciting future, potentially with Schwartz in charge, with, with Zelko Vuvac in a sporting director. And they really in the summer, released a lot of the ageing uh, aging players and, and released some of the contracts, replaced them with youth. If you look at Dinamo's squad, Dinamo's was actually the, the, the starting 11, was the youngest average age of any RPL side midweek. And you I got didn't know that. Well. In, in the front six, Firmin's the oldest at 24, Morrow and Lesavoy is only 23, Shamansky 21, Gruliov 21, Zakarian's not even 18 yet, Tukavin who came on's only just turned 18. Aside from Shunin, the entirety of the the first team is under the age of the first starting lineup is under the age of thirty. The the next best, the next youngest after that was Spartak, um, who were also very similar. Lots of exciting young players really coming through. I think the future is potentially bright for Dinamo. I think Arsene Zakarian is a, <laughs> rightfully deserves his place on that Guardian Next Generation list or wherever it was because every single game he's played, he's just changed it he's been absolutely brilliant so far and hopefully he can keep that form up because he is quite young hopefully he's not just riding a crest of a rave right now but there's this old adage that Galitsky had at Krasnodar that he wanted a team of Krasnodar academy products in his in the 11 he wanted a manager of history of working through these products all the way up through the academy levels so if we keep if we move a little bit down to Krasnodar they actually had the second oldest starting eleven of any side midweek, and there was more Zenit Academy products in that team than there was Krasnodar. So Hanu, I know you're a famous fan of Murad Masayev in Krasnodar. Do you think <laughs> they can turn it around at all, or are they potentially looking over the shoulders to to your f- other favourite team, Ahmad? Absolutely not. They are an awful club, which has they make me so angry, right? And it's irrational. No, it's irrational, actually. It's not irrational anymore. It's completely irrational. They can't turn it around. They're not getting Europe. Murad Musayev should have been sacked three months ago, and he's, he's still got a job. Their academy has produced three to four players of actual quality. They keep getting into contract disputes with their own players. And then, yeah, that keeps happening. Happened with Ivan Ignatiev, happened with Shapi for a bit, apparently happening with Safonov now. Their transfer business over the past two years has been questionable to say the you know to, to be to be polite it has been questionable uh, i can't remember the last 223 player they signed and now you're hearing rumors of them wanting like the front runner for their job for the manager job is victor goncharenko and it is seriously leading me to question if that club actually has its own best interest at hand because not not only are they extremely opaque <laughs> when it comes to their you know media efforts and everything that's off the pitch that's fine whatever right but because yeah. Krasnodar why they represented such a great hope in Russian football was that at a point it looked like they could actually challenge the the, the sort of faction of, of elites like CSKA, Zenit and, and Spartak which would send shockwaves because it's a completely private club which has yeah. gone and won the league and now it just seems like 
they are entering this stage of mediocrity and this stage of shooting themselves in the foot where they're just going to end up like Rostov and Dinamo where they're always sort of challenging for Europe. They're never going to get relegated, but they're never going to do anything more than that. And it doesn't seem like any major changes to change that and to actually be a part of the elite are being made. And yeah, like I'm, I'm really confused in the direction that they're choosing to go in. I don't know how Musayev's still in the job given he keeps embarrassing himself and you know we often talk about how you know russian football's got so many problems why are we so bad in europe and we haven't been able to pinpoint the reason yet and i firmly believe now that it's just the managers because goncharenko we know is is not a great manager nikolic was only a few months in his job at at loco when they were in the champions league semak has been pretty like mediocre in europe and then you've got murad mosaev who won one game against ren and on that basis he managed to qualify but that's the thing i don't i don't get what Krasnodar are trying to do maybe i'm being too harsh but yeah just everything about them reeks of this sort of incompetence at the moment yeah i think the most frustrating thing about Krasnodar and why we kind of do come on come down on them like a ton of bricks is, is when you hit the nail on the head there it's the potential of Krasnodar they are really showing like you look at russian football and you discuss the problems and some of the problems are from academy level, not giving players chances, uh, sending them out be too early because they're too small or because they're not quite good enough. Like um, George Zhikia was a locomotive academy player, got shipped out because he was considered too small to be a centre-back, ended up being Russian national team vice-captain. Uh, you you'd see Krasnodar and they, they could break this St. Petersburg, Moscow hegemony over the league. They, could, they, can, they have the best academy. They can show... They do things the right way, off the pitch and on the pitch. And it's so frustrating because of the potential that's there for everyone else to say, look at that, look at this as, as a way to hold yourselves up and as a way to move forward. And I think that is why we do seem to come across so harsh on them. Because it's just so frustrating. Richard, any last words on Krasnodar? Um, yeah, just to come in on Krasnodar, it's interesting as well how, you know, we've been questioning the likes of Tony Villeneuve and um, Christopher Olsen in that midfield. Well, you know, look at who they were playing at the um, midweek, Dinamo. They had a former U- a former Krasnodar Academy player in Daniel Fomin in the midfield. So it does make you, does make you wonder, doesn't it? Like they're looking for a midfielder right now who's, you know, better than what they've got. And they had a good midfield player. He did well at Ufa and Dinamo just stole in and, and bought him. Uh, before Krastar could potentially look at buying him back. So, yeah, th- there needs to be a push with Krastar. I'm with I'm with you guys on this. There needs to be a push with Krastar now. They're not, to use a comparative English Premier League example, they, we're not talking about a club in mid-table here in Krastar, a mid-table level club who are punched above the weight last few seasons. They're one of the best back clubs in Russian football. They've got one of the wealthiest owners. They've got arguably the best academy. This is like, you know, in reputation terms, they're sort of like a, a Tottenham or an Arsenal level club. They should be up competing with trophies. You know, they're not this mid-table club anymore. They need to start thinking in that way. And I think, yeah, there needs to be a spark with Krasnodar because at the minute it's all in danger of going a bit stale and uh, that would be a real shame. Yeah, certainly. And if we stay down the South Coast, just a little bit further towards the Black Sea, Sochi are kind of the antithesis of Krasnodar and yet you they are both new clubs, but Sochi were they took Dino St. Petersburg, 
moved them all the way down south to what is essentially a holiday resort with nobody there. Um, I should dislike Sochi. Everything about my being tells me to dislike Sochi. I hate what they did to Dino. Uh, I don't like Boris Rotenberg. When you look at the team midweek, they absolutely destroyed Tampov 5-0. Uh, the average age of the side was 30.6. Only Novoseltsev, Miladinovic, Zaika and Zavolotti were actually under the age of 30. Jesus. But they were brilliant. And a large part of that is is just down to Christian Naboa. Uh, we, we interviewed him on the site, um, so full disclaimer on that, because and he is a friend of, of RFN. But if you just look at his stats, he had 113 touches, 97 passes against Tampov, seven key passes. I, he didn't score, but he got two assists and was easily the, the man of the match. He's currently the highest, statistically the highest rated player out of anybody in the entirety of the RPL. Um, I just wish he was given a bigger chance at Zenit because he really deserves it. And I think he's probably been one of the best players in the RPL over the last 10 years. Uh, I just wanted to basically uh, put a little word out for Nabor and just absolute admiration at the way he's been playing this season. It's, it's unbelievable. And before moving on to where probably Sochi should be and have been before this, this run is to the relegation race. And, I think it's fair to say that Tambov, Ufa, Arsenal and Rotter are pretty much all but confirmed as going to be the four sides in the relegation and the playoff relegation playoff spaces. Hanu, to come to yourself. Tambov, are they dead? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, certainly. They're, they're, they've lost every game since the return. They've got a team of players you've either never heard of or just there just to get game time from on loan from other clubs. But Richard, do you think that Ufa could pretend, potentially jump out of the automatic relegation spaces now that Gazizov's back and challenge Arsenal or a managerless with the departure of Katskevich uh, Rotter? I think they probably could get out of the automatic relegation zone, yes. I, I actually think that Arsenal and Ufa will get out of there and I am actually going to tip Rotter now to go down automatically with um, with um, with Tamboff. Um, Rotor just, yeah, I think Ufa, you know, they showed against Lokomotiv it was a narrow defeat. You know, they, the, the, the in games, no, I think that's the most important thing with Ufa. They're, they're, they're starting to show a bit of signs of a bit of a revival. Um, and I think when they start playing against opponents, you know, unlike Rubin and Lokomotiv opponents, you know, who I don't really expect them to get anything from. But when they play some of the opponents down there and some of the ones in mid table who've got nothing to play for, I do start. I do expect them to start picking up a few points. So yeah, I think I think they will get themselves out of it, and I think they they and Arsenal will finish thirteenth um, and fourteenth in, in whatever order, and I think Rotor will will um, will drop into the relegation zone and be relegated. So yeah, they've been pretty dreadful. Um, it 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 all depends for me upon who they replace Katskiewicz with, with, because Katskiewicz did excellent with Rotor in the league below. He's a, a very experienced manager, but they have been pretty dreadful this season, especially going forward. There's just very little there. It's all based upon uh, the individual quality of Flamarian and Ponsa, which look at is, isn't exactly the highest, to be honest, in their best of times anyway. Or Zerico going on a, a mazy dribble. It's There's not a lot of game plan there, and I can see why he's gone. Um, whether or not Rotter drop into those automatics for me is, is based upon 
who they appoint to replace him and whether or not that's just some normal club legend or an actual coach again. But unfortunately, we're going to have to move on and we'll move on because this weekend's actually, there's no RPL action with the onset of the in, international break that's coming. As I mentioned earlier, Russia play three World Cup qualifiers against Slovakia, Slovenia and Malta. And I'll quickly run through uh, Stanislav Cherchesov's squad for those three games. Uh, the goalkeepers, Yuri Chupin, Anton Shunin, Sozlan Zhenayev. Defence of Zhikia, Zhirkov, Kalavayev, uh, Zhirov, Kudlyashov, Neustadter, Shamoshnikov, uh, Semyonov, Smolnikov and Mario Fernandez. Midfielders, Ilza Takhmetov, uh, a return of Alexander Golovin, Rifaj Zhamanetinov, Roman Zobnin, Alexey Yonov, Dalek Kuzyaev, Andrei Mostovoy, Magomed Ozdoyev, Rezian Mirzov, Alexey Melanchuk and Daniel Fumin. And then the strikers, as usual, are the three big men up top of Artyom Zuba, Alexander Sobolev and Anton Zabolotny. Now, that is a little bit of a long list. Go on the RFN Twitter feeds and you can find... Hanu's got this squad together and translated it from Russian. Um, there has been a few changes, though, since then. Uh, Alexander Zhirov, of course, is, is the centre-back who's based in Sandhausen in Germany. Unfortunately, due to COVID and travel restrictions, he can't actually quit to Slovakia for the game, so he's just been replaced entirely by Ilya Kutipov for the squad. And since the announcement as well, Roman Zobnin and Sozlan Zhenayev have both pulled out due to injury. And they've been replaced by Mikhail Mukin, uh, Mukin, the young central midfielder at Lokomotiv, and Andrzej Lunyov, who's in a little bit of a resurgence of form of late. So just quickly on this one, guys. Uh, Hanu, any shout-outs there? Any ex- excited call-ups? Or do you think it's a bit more the same from Chichesov? No, it's actually one of the better squads he's put out ever, I- I'd say. I think I'm only mad at Ionov, Zhirkov and... Uh... No, I started everybody else. Seems fine. I'm happy to see Golovin back. Happy to see Miranchuk back. Happy to see Samoshnikov, Dupin, a uh, few of these guys. Yeah, so I, I like the squad, honestly. I don't have anything negative to say. Richard? Yeah, yeah um, it's, it's a better squad pick from Churchesoft this time. I mean, there's still, like I knew, I, I still have a few gripes about one or two positions, like... Not a fan of Ionov being in there. Do you really need three right-backs with um, Karavayev, Fernandez, and Smolnikov? I'm not really sure you do. I would have personally preferred um, to see um, Dmitry Skopintsev in there ahead of, um, of Yuri Zhirkov. I'm still just perplexed as to how a guy who's not playing for Zenit nowadays is still getting called up for Russia. At least with Kudryashov, you know, you can play him as a centre-back in a three. You know, when he has, he has played every single minute this season for Antalya Spore in Turkey, so he's still... Played at a relatively decent level, so fair enough. Um, really happy to see Samoshnikov in there. Yuri Dupin deserves his call up. I actually, I think, it, are they playing? Is it? Are they playing Malta first of those three games? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, if I was, if I personally, I don't know, I don't know whether Stanny will do this, but I would probably start Samoshnikov in that game. You know, Malta is a very modest opponent on paper, anyway. You know, if you know, you've got to blood young players at some point. And I think this these last couple of weeks for Rubin, he's been excellent. And I think he would deserve it. And, you know, yeah, I'd like to see a few younger players, maybe Fomin, given a, a go against Malta, you know. Um, so, yeah, he has been actually been one of his better squads, I think. Um, still one or two bits. Mm-hmm. I think he could have improved on. But nonetheless, one of the better squads. So 
Yeah, considering Chichisov's the most conservative man in the world, it's not too bad. Um, we've mentioned before, we've probably became a bit of a broken record in saying that in in Russia, generally, it tends to be big batches of players that come through all at once. Um, Russia's under-21s currently is probably just as good as the first team, nearly. And that it is actually the most experienced uh, under-21s side in, out of all the recent international sides that have been uh, composed. They, they have more combined, they have more first-team caps than any other side in Europe. Um, so I can see why he is still hesitant to call up certain players. Uh, with the Zobnin pulling out, Mukin's being called up because he doesn't want to pull away people like Obliakov from the under-21 side. So yeah, it, I understand it, it that. is yeah. because he's working in phases. But yeah, I'm 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 delighted to see Jupin in there, Samoshnikov. Uh, I'm actually glad that Girov is included because it's it's totally different and he's been brilliant for Sandhausen this season. It's something that I didn't really expect from Chichesov, but I don't know why he has a proclivity for every single striker to be like six foot twelve and just a complete target man. Um but like it's <laughs> it's better than it has been recently. Um yeah. The the one big name constantly annoying is is the fact that Yuri Sherkov is like sixty seven now and is still in, in the squad week in, week out. But it's been better and because the international break is boring, we're gonna move on, but we will cover Russia's games after they are played. Um because we've got a little interesting return of the RFN mailbag and of course, this time it is the RFN and whatever this is mailbag, with Hanu obviously joining us. Now we did ha- we did put up, put up a tweet calling out for some questions, comments, and concerns from you all to get in touch, and we've had quite a few people reply in the tweet and send us emails in. So thank you all who's got in touch. So first off is David Dano, friend of the site, the man behind FC Zenit Mauritius. So if you could, what three things would you change in the RPL? So I think we'll take one each, and I'm going to take the hosting rights and the easy way out of going first by saying get rid of the foreigner limit, Richard. Yeah, we we could all say that one. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, <laughs> that one. Um, yeah, one thing I would put in there is I want to start seeing in the from now to the end of the season is a bit more of what we've been talking about earlier in the pod, like from the likes of. Nikolic at uh, Lokomotiv, from the likes of Schwartz at Dinamo, from the likes of Tedesco at Sparta. I want to start seeing some more experimentation from clubs and, you know, developing, you know, um, more of a positive vibrancy and style about the league. I think, you know, I, I like the way that young players at Lokomotiv and Dinamo have been integrated. I like the way Slutsky has been given, you know, players like Samoshnikov and Makarov, who were brought in from the Feniel chances in the first team not just wait going oh I'll wait I'll wait I'll play them in three four months time no he's, he's integrated them right now into the squad developing them improving them and you know and there's two clubs I really want to call out on this and that's Atmat and um, Ural you know in mid-table they're pretty much those two clubs they're not going to get relegated they're not going to qualify for Europe the rest of the season pretty much is well Atmat's still in the cup but the rest of the season in the league is pretty much now dead rubber a lot of dead rubber games I don't really, in the case of Ural, want to keep seeing them play Pavel Pobrevniak up front. I'd rather see them try something different. You know, I'd, they brought in Maximenko and um, Gadzhi Midurov from the Feniel. They've got a younger striker in Andrei Panyukov. You know, I don't see... I want to start seeing them experiment a bit more. And it's the same with Atmat too. Like, 
You know, they brought in Gabriel Iancu, who, you know, was top scorer in the Romanian league last season with Vitoru Constanza. Yeah, he's been very, very slow to, to um, Andre Talai. He's been very, very slow to, you know, give him some starts. I want to see these guys get starts. You know, I don't want to keep seeing Vladimir Ilyin play um, and uh, Pavel Pobrevniak play at Ural. Let's, you know, we know what these guys can do. Let's freshen up the squads a little bit and just experiment and probably try and play a bit more of a positive style, you know, more in tune with what we're seeing from the likes of Schwartz and Nikolic and, and Slutsky. You know, experiment a bit. You know, that's... You know, because we've seen at Rotor with how horrendously bad they've been attacking. You know, I want to start seeing this ultra conservatism of some coaches removed, and you know, let let's start playing some younger players, integrating signings right from the get go. Because signings are only gonna, you know, we're only gonna make a proper judgment about signings if you if you properly give them a chance. And I think you know you've got to integrate them at some point. So yeah, that's probably one little gripe I'm gonna get off my chest a little bit because, um, and I think it's, it's um, you know, you could condition that across the, the whole of the league sometimes but yeah I want to I want to start seeing that you know a bit more you know I want to start seeing the progressive um, guys who are doing the things that Nikolic is doing at Loco and Schwartz is doing at Dinamo and Slutsky at Rubin I want to start seeing more of that across the league to make it you know um, to make it you know more attractive so that's one thing I would probably change and Hanu what one thing would you change in the LPL yeah I'd was thinking of something more institutional, so I'd probably go with um, trying the best to make the league as um, financially sustainable and as commercially attractive as possible. So just, you know, privatize things, uh, like promote investment, whether that's foreign or, or local. And foreign element, obviously, he said. And one other thing I'm sorry I'd like to add is I just like more new people um, to come through, like just new voices new types of people, no more dinosaurs. So, yeah, that, that's all I want, really. So, from Ben, after Ben Zenit, what are the biggest transfer flops in the history of the league? Now, I'm going to come from this from a, from a Spartak perspective right now, because let me tell you, there's some hilariously terrible signings for a hell of a lot of money that Spartak have, have shipped out on, on well, crap. Gus Till, <laughs> 15 million. Gus Till cost Spartak 15 million. You got the famous, of course, Pedro Rocha, cost 11 million to sit and play in the Fenerel weekend we go for Spartak 2 and still be bad. Uh, but I think the one that always comes to mind is a little bit older one, a little bit of an older transfer, is, is that of the Argentinian striker, Fernando Cavanaghi. Now, he was signed from River Plate in 2004 for like just under 10 million. I think it was like eight, eight and a half million at the time. Um, he was absolutely dreadful. I think he's, he was famous for like, I think he's most famous for getting an assist for Spartak. But he, he scored like, I think he scored one in five. He, he got double figures for Spartak. But for the money that was paid, for when it was paid, I mean, like this was a time when Oleg uh, Romancev had not long left the club. Fadun had not long came in. And Spartak didn't really sign that many foreigners away from like the satellite states or the former Soviet satellite states. And this guy came in for big money in 2004 and just absolutely flopped. Uh, Richard, who do you think any big transfer flops of late? Yeah, I'll go with those that you mentioned. I, I even read Gus Till as struggle at Freiburg. I even remember seeing him, hearing about him playing a couple of games for the for the second side. Which, you know, that that really is a come down of epic proportions. Um, and Rocha, obviously as well. He's his career really is in limbo at the minute. I mean, goodness knows what is going to happen there because. 
just Spartak are just trying to offload him, but no one wants him. <laughs> it's just, you know, and, um, you know, Spartak don't really want him. No one else really wants him. Hmm. Um, I think the most obvious one, really, looking at um, current recent events, is um, Adolfo Geish. And, you know, going back to what we were saying about Goncharenko earlier, that's probably also another reason why Goncharenko is feeling the heat at the moment, because apparently we were looking on our RFN chat on Facebook over the winter break, and apparently we, we got wind of apparently Geish was the one who pushed for the... Sorry, Goncharenko was the one who pushed for the Adolfo Geish transfer, which, if true, you know, that's probably another reason at the minute why, you know, the speculation over his future, because ultimately, at the end of the day, he was the one who wanted that, that transfer, and it hasn't worked out. And when you pay such a huge amount of money for a player, nearly 10 million euros, you know, it's... It's not good. So, yeah, guys just was such a disappointment. I mean, admittedly, I don't know whether it was... Partly it might have been. He he never really looked super convincing in some of the games he played. But then again, did Gontrenko adopt, adopt the tactics to suit him? That might have been an issue too. He strikes me as someone who really needs to be paired up with somebody in an attacking two. But yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably go with Adolfo Geish. That's the one that sticks out in my mind. And Hanu, worst transfer of all time in the... Probably going to say Pedro Rocha because they're not going to make any money off of him and they paid a lot of money for him. Um, otherwise, Maximilian Philip comes to mind. He was god awful. Twenty million yes. for him. Yes. We all forgot about him really. But if they can get like twelve million, even ten million back for him, then it's not that bad. But yeah, probably Pedro Rocha. Does anybody remember Mozart? The Spartak, yeah, not the I've composer. Him. I've heard of him, I mean. Briefly, yeah. <laughs> it was just when I was just starting, taking a slight interest in Russian football, only very briefly, though. Yeah, he was decent. Um, he played like a lot for Spartak, like, more than you would expect. But he was he was fine. He was good. He's, he's one of the ones who's kind of fondly remembered by Spartak fans. I just always think of Mozart when I think of flops. And he's not a flop. It's just more of a meme of the fact that Spartak signed two classical composers or Brazilians named after classical composers in two years in a row but Hanu which Russian managers are good enough to go abroad um <laughs> it's a low list yeah I mean abroad I would presume for like uh they'd have like I don't know I think Leonard Slutsky and Fedotov that's it yeah I think I would say yeah my favorite manager in Everyone's favorite manager and Alexander Gregorian is probably very talented and one of the best who could go abroad anyway. Well, Obviously, yeah. famously just came back from Armenia. And he's well. abroad, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's as far abroad as he's going to go. <laughs> Richard, any for you? Any Russian managers who could actually go abroad and apply their trade elsewhere? Yeah, probably just the two that Hanu mentioned, really Fedotov and, um, and Slutsky. I mean, if Samat can adapt tactically next season, then you know I won't rule that out in the future. But he, he's this season has shown, especially with the performances in Europe, he's got a lot to learn. But the two at the minute, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd call with Slutsky and Fedotov. And I say it's, it's just so strange that Siska are, are looking. I'm to reiterate my point once again, it's so strange that they're looking at Olic. To me, Fedotov is just he's just saying loud and clear to Siska, "Come and get me. I'm coaching well at Sochi." look what I could do with Siska's players when I'm taking one of the oldest squads in the RPL and making it perform to that level. So, so yeah, I think Fedotov and um, Slutsky would be my two on current, um, amongst the current crop of Russian managers, which really does say a lot about the current crop of Russian coaches. 
Yeah, it's it's quite slim pickings to be honest. There's a lot of there's a lot. Of, I mean, like a couple of years ago, everyone definitely would have said Semak when he Zenit had won the league twice in a row, or even after the first year when he he got Zenit won the league again for the first time in forever. He just came off the back of a very successful spell with Ufa leading them into Europe. So Semak, he could do it, but like you said, it's. These these performances for Zenit in Europe this season and last season are particularly worrying and really is like a, a, quite a red flag. The last one on my Twitter page is from Connor, that's at Uzbek Football UK, and he's asked us to pick the top three to five Russian prospects and choose which league and club you'd like to see them leave the RPL if they were to this summer. So, guys, I think we'll just take one each just for the interest of time. So, Hanu, what, what one Russian prospect would you like to to leave the league and where would you like to see them go? Um, Igor Deviv probably anywhere, anywhere in the top five. Yeah, like I'm a big fan of Deviv. Richard, anyone in particular? Um, yeah, um, I'll I'll go with the centre half and I'd like to see Evgeniev go abroad as well. I think, um, and again, anywhere in the in the top five, I think Germany will be a good place. Germany is really good for developing young players and bringing them on. And um, yeah, I'd quite like to see um, if Genia go abroad. And I think uh, the German Bundesliga will be really good. You can find a club there. Yeah, that's something that doesn't really happen very often with Russian players as well. They don't really. I mean, look, it's Russia has less players than just about any other country in Europe abroad playing their trade right now. Um, it's something that's a typically Russian and English problem. Both countries have that issue where not many players do tend to move away from, from what's comfortable. Um, particularly with Russia, is you very, very rarely see experience, uh, Russian centre-backs ex- move, moving abroad or Russian defenders moving abroad to experience different cultures. Um, in that, I would like to see, I think, eventually people like Zakaryan and Pinyaev and the real young lot make their moves so not yet it's far too early yet they need to develop at their own clubs first but we i want to see them making moves like gullivan has like like such like leosha Muranchuk has where they are really going out there and, and and saying look this is where we want to develop this is where we can really make ourselves better and can develop russian football like cherishev did he's bought he's, he's born in spain i think wasn't he like stay out. No, he was born in Nishni, um, but his father was playing in Spain, and he's been living there since he was about nine, ten, I think. So, yeah, move out at an earlier age, like like him, and and really develop and really immerse yourself into the culture because you don't you, you don't want to see another Kakorin who's constantly linked with moves away. I think he was linked with every single league in Europe at some point during his career, and then finally does get his move away after he's already in the wrong end of thirty. Otherwise. Like him, you you leave it far too late. We did have three emails come in as well. The first one's from David Mitchell, and he's asked, can you fill us in about the latest in the doping scandals? Now, I presume that you mean, David, I presume that you mean the recent one with uh, Rostov's Vladimir Obukov. And this is basically that FIFA have told the RFU that they are going to initiate investigative proceedings against three Russian footballers over concealed doping offences dating back to 2013. Uh, Obukov himself has been, was guilty of taking a banned growth substance in under-21's national team training camp in this year. And neither the RFU nor the players' camp have denied their claims. 
Now he, f- he faces a four-year ban if he is punished. And the two other players are former Torpedo player Ivan Knaev. I'm not even going to try and say that. I can barely speak English, and that Russian is very hard to read. And female footballer Daria Meshkyova. Now, if Obakov is found guilty, he absolutely and entirely deserves this. Any doping of any level in the game is just horrendous. It's appalling. It's disgusting. It's every expletive that you can think about is is that. Um, is this further, especially with what's gone on in recent years surrounding Russian athletics, um, the mystery about Ruslan Kambalov's sudden disappearance from any form of football for six months, uh, all the Icarus scandal and all these the purported and reported state-sponsored doping. It's it's an issue that's plaguing Russia for a very long time, and it needs to end. It's it's disgraceful. Like if Obukov is guilty, then he fully deserves this four-year ban, and there's nothing less, in my opinion, that can be said about that. Uh, we had an email from Augustus Caldwell. Uh, he claims that in my football manager saves, the introduction of the European Conference League is a boon for Russian clubs, and they frequently end up winning it, thus greatly improving the UEFA coefficient. As we all know, football manager's word is gospel. So do you think this is likely to happen as Russian teams are generally not quite good enough to win the Champions League or Europa League? Richard, what do you think? Well, I think in general for the the Europa Conference League has kind of been set up for leagues like the RPL and also for generally generally speaking leagues outside of the Big Five in Europe because the last team outside of the Big Five leagues in Europe to win the Champions League was Porto and that was back in 2004 and then the last team to win the Europa League even from outside of the Big Five leagues was actually Porto themselves in 2011 under Andreas Boas. So you can see this new competition, the Europa Conference League has been set up for leagues outside of the top five and um, I think that Russia is in a decent position in this competition, theoretically anyway, even if the results in Europe in the last couple of years have not been great. Because if you look at um, the Russian Premier League now, you've sort of got, I think, a batch of about seven or eight clubs. Zenit, Siskar, Dinamo, um, Spartak, Lokomotiv, uh, Sochi, Rubin and Krasnodar. All those eight clubs are quite well backed. Um, they've got the potential, a lot of them, to be playing in that competition over the next five years. Um, so... It's a competition which, yes, with the right managerial recruitment, better better transfers in the summer, and also, you know, maybe a relaxing of the foreign limit, maybe to twelve players rather than the current limit of eight. Where I think if some of those factors were to happen, there's absolutely no reason why the Russian teams couldn't compete to try and win the Conference League. Um, you know, I see it as an opportunity to um, to boost the coefficient points of the league going forward, and we definitely need that now after two really poor seasons. And yeah, I I really do see the Conference League as an opportunity for Russian clubs and it's it's, it's a competition which they should be trying to win. Also as well, what you've got to bear in mind too is, is that the, the big leagues are only getting, the big five leagues are only getting one representative each in this. So the draws that the Russian teams will get in the group stage in the earlier rounds for this would be theoretically anyway, um, not as um, high a level of an opponent that they'd be playing. So I think this this new Conference League is an opportunity for Russian clubs, which they've got to try to grasp. Um, obviously, the caveat is 
you know, certain factors have got to change. Like I mentioned, the foreign limit ideally will be lifted completely. But if it's relaxed to 12, I think that will give Russian clubs more depth. I'd like to see, you know, some fresh new managers on the scene. You know, if, if Zenit don't do well in Europe again next season, I'd like probably like to see them go down the foreign route again. I'd like to see a fresh change at Siska. We don't know what's going to happen with Tedesco at Spartak yet. But yeah, in theory, the Conference League should act as possibly a rebuilding uh, competition for Russian clubs in Europe. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. As someone who also follows other big five leagues too, I'm looking forward to seeing um, how those leagues will become more com- uh, it, We'll, we'll give those we'll give clubs outside the top five a chance to win a trophy in Europe and um, you know um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it and it is an ideal chance for the Russian clubs to rebuild based on the reasons I've said uh, previously yeah definitely hopefully we can finally get some Russian sides competing in Europe for some honours even if they are third tier honours or whatever it's the coefficients are still vitally important at those later rounds and every single time you progress you get the bonus points the last one from Phil, and he asks that we keep his second name anonymous, so we'll really respect that. Uh, what are your views on the Black Lives Matter movement and kneeling ahead of matches? Now, Hanu, I've seen yourself tweeting about this and about the kind of the way that it's been re- reported upon in the Russian media in particular, and, and their almost anti-BLM reporting, I think, is it's been pretty disgusting. To be quite honest, what Hanu, what do you think? Yeah, I'm probably going to go for far too long. But I was saying that to start, I'm completely in support of any um, movement or any campaign which supports racial equality, gender equality, anything. And I think our audience will be more interested in listening to how Russian media and how Russian football has handled the entire thing. And with kneeling in, in particular as well, I... Um, don't have any issues with it I am you know it's it's something important it has given a lot of attention to the great cause that's being um, promoted through it and I feel like a lot of footballers and stuff have had issues with it being just a performative action where you're kneeling for a couple of seconds before every game but nothing nothing else is being done to combat racism in football which is obviously a, a very fair thing to do and say and they have they're within their rights to say that and everybody is within their rights to kneel or not kneel or so on and, and that that's up to everybody else and in russia for those who are not aware um blm the, the concept of blm has been looked at with a great deal of scrutiny and with a great deal of um antagonism ever since the protests in america began last year and i've spoken to, i mean most russians you see in in um Basically, every game a Russian team played in Europe or uh, even when um, the Russian referee was, was refing a game midweek, you know, Russian players have decided almost exclusively to not kneel. And I've spoken to Russian people. I've had debates with, with, with Russian people. You know, people I respect, people I have uh, great admiration for. And they've given me some very valid reasons as to why certain Russian people may not kneel. But that doesn't take away from their commitment to fighting racial injustice and so on where it gets tricky i feel like and i should preface this by saying that russian football is full of tons and tons of great people tons and tons of people that stand up for the right things um you know every most people in russian football are completely regular people like me and you who are moral and good people and and so on and so forth but i feel like the way in which 
the stakeholders and the torchbearers of Russian football have handled uh, racial injustice or their words on BLM or on any such thing have been quite quite disappointing and depressing to say the least. So, for example, we saw when that idiot Dinamo manager said whatever he said about um, girls playing football. And although we mostly saw that the response was, you know, people excoriating him, we also saw lots of idiots sort of say, oh, no, he's right, so on and so forth. Even when um, the PSG Basak Sayer situation happened, where, you know, the players walked off the pitch, that was pretty jarring for me because the overwhelming sentiment on the timeline was, one, they should get on with it. Two, oh, the guy said nothing wrong. Three, what's this going on? There's too much BLM. There's too much, which is just, which is sad to see, especially from people who you think are educated and who are educated. And then what's even worse is that people say that, you know, Russian football, we've been fighting RFN. One of the major things RFN has done is it's fought. It's been sort of the only Western publication that has fought the conception that Russia is full of racist shitheads. And, you know, you shouldn't play Russian, you shouldn't be a part of Russian football because it's just full of racism and and racist chants and everything. And that's not true at all. But I feel like there are certain things which need to be combated, which Russia doesn't help itself with. So uh, a prevailing trend that's been going on is that Russians have taken, haven't taken well to BLM, haven't taken well to any of it. And now what's going on is that whenever there's an opportunity for a player or a referee or a person to not kneel, let's say they don't kneel, then it becomes this entire trend and campaign in Russian football where they've made it into an entire news story. Thousands of people are championing that with severe racist undertones. Sometimes it's explicit, sometimes it's not. And the referee, for example, was basically being heralded as a national hero because he chose not to kneel. It's such an it's pretty irrelevant to the large scale of things, but just in Russia, you had respected publications writing six to seven articles, basically championing, oh, look at this, oh, well done, um, congratulations, you know, you st- stood up for the right thing. And then you have thousands of people in the comments like, oh, well, he's done. And then they're writing follow-up pieces to that. Oh, is this guy going to get banned? Oh, is this going to happen? And oh, it's is this going to happen? So we've said in the past that Russian football ultras or those at the top of Russian football haven't done enough to combat the problems that exist within their own ultra factions. Zenit in particular is a club that I've been very critical of when it comes to this. But I feel like the vast majority of Russian football media's coverage of everything that's been related to racial equality has been been quite disappointing and quite jarring, where they're essentially looking for ways to justify their own actions of not kneeling or of not supporting a campaign or whatever. And I'd like to know what you guys think. That That's basically the end of my extremely long-winded rant. But it's just been disappointing because there's so many good people and there's so much good in Russian football. But when you see things like this, when you see things, when you see people tearing down legitimate campaigns and, and legitimate sentiments, it's, it's really sad to see. And especially when you see people championing a referee simply because he didn't kneel, that just seems awfully... This doesn't seem right to me. It seems immoral to me. And I mean, I'd, I'd like to know what you guys think. That's the end of my rant. Yeah. I've also discussed this with some Russian colleagues and, and friends of ours. And 
And some of them don't like the idea of kneeling per se, purely because they feel like they are patriotic people and it's unpatriotic to do so if it's to kneel against your country and your nation. I, I I don't agree with that. I understand that. I understand where they come from. The problem is, is when you have these articles where and these sentiments of anti-BLM, anti-campaigns, these anti-movements, is this isn't just racism. This is actively putting down anti-racism. We have been fervent at us at RFN, I feel like hopefully, tend to try and toe with the line on the middle ground between the difficulty of of the West and the East, of you have one side saying this, another side saying this, and they're always butting heads. And we try to tow that line. We try to create that bridge. Back in 2014, we got in touch with Robert Oustian, who created Cisco Fans Against Racism. And to not put words into anyone's mouth, I will read directly an excerpt from the excellent interview with Robert, the man behind Cisco Fans Against Racism, on the site. And he said that we are a group of dedicated Cisco fans who want to change general perception of the club supporters to show the other side, the bright side of our legendary club with great traditions. The incident in Rome, which was the quicker side, the incident of Nazi salutes given in Rome in 2014, uh, was the point in where we said enough is enough. Cisco's international image was completely ruined. We are perceived not as a team that won the UEFA Cup, but as one which is awful racist fans to focus only upon destroying things and abusing black people. Now, this is Robert's words directly. I'm not putting words into his mouth. This is an interview directly with Robert. And I think he's absolutely bang on in this. It's not about, oh, we disagree with this. We don't have this problem. It's The, the problem is, is you these articles and these schools of thought are putting down hugely important issues this they're trying to claim that black that the, the black lives don't matter to be honest i mean that might might be a little bit incendiary but that's exactly how it comes across it's ridiculing it it's saying that oh what's this marxist blm blm is a non-for-profit charitable organization purely about look it's the, the best thing i can say we have described it as a scene of little girl little, little black girl holding up a photo and it's not saying and she, she had a, a placard saying we're not saying only black lives matter we know all lives matter. All we're doing is asking you for help to make our lives matter more. And that's, a, like, obviously, it was probably drawn by the parents, but it's a little six-year-old girl holding up this sign. And it's one of the best ways I've seen of describing it possible. It, at the end of the day, it's a, move, it's a movement for justice, for racial justice and for equality. And I don't see how in any world Actively supporting people who go against that and mo and mocking it and ridiculing it is helping a the perception of Russia and f Russian football fans elsewhere in the world, rightly or wrongly, because in our uh, we know that look before the World Cup you had a spate of articles and whatever else from Western outlets saying Russia is racist, football of a uh, violent a uh, festival of violence at the World Cup. Racist fans, violent. Like it was again, again. It was, it was hammered, didn't you? And that's not true. But actions like this, articles like this, feed that stereotype, feed that perception. It causes, like we had Ilya on last week, discussing about the the sexism in Russian football, and he was almost exacerbated at times. 
because these sort of opinions make normal, the vast majority of football fans in the nation look worse and appear worse. In this article, we've got a little girl with Robert here who's holding up a Cisco fans against racism, Nazi symbol. It's not, it's, it encompasses all people in all ages, racism. I can't understand why anybody would want to go against this and ridicule this directly, even if you don't agree with necessarily the overarching argument or maybe have issues with kneeling due to pictures. You have your own little nuances. It's just incredibly frustrating. Um, it is, yeah. Definitely. You it's exacerbating. Well, but yeah, it is, it, is, it is draining at times because... I got into Russian football in 2017 and I was sort of on a crusade to fix these perceptions in before the World Cup, you know, when uh, I remember writing a piece for some Celtic fan site when Zenit were going to come to town. And at, at that point, there was this thing that the Scottish Sun horrible establishment wrote, which was that, oh, Russian hooligans are going to come and trash Glasgow, which was as idiotic as what, you know, we see in Russian media. But as, as time has gone on, it's it's unfortunately, as we've sort of delved deeper into Russian football and understood it, it seems like a lot of those archaic perceptions and archaic viewpoints are held by the vocal, the, the set of people that are vocal in Russian football hold those sort of views, whether that's um, idiotic pundits um, like, you know, Igorov and... and the others that we've called out, whether that's ex-players who have somehow managed to get their way into media just because they were average for a couple of years. And I do hope that it changes with time. But um, yeah, sorry to everybody listening as well for turning this into such a serious episode. But um, yeah, I mean, that's all I have to say. What's really disappointing me is the reaction to Wilfred Zaha's actions for those who don't know, Wilfred Zaha has spoke against kneeling of late, and at the weekend he actually refused to kneel. And I've seen this in Championat, um, in The Sun in England, uh, The Times, and Rod Liddle, who's a terrific English um, commentator with regards to politics and race. Um, they all kind of held up his argument and saying, see, this is why we've been saying kneeling is wrong all along. I've seen some Millwall fans who are outwardly in support of when they booed kneeling when they were back at the games in December in England um, saying the same thing. Like, look, even he says that this is wrong, that Black Lives Matter is a fascist or Marxist organisation, that this should not be done. Now, that's even more infuriating. Wilfred Zaha is not refusing to kneel because he agrees with you. He's refusing to kneel because of people like you, because nothing's being done. He sees it as an empty gesture now that was just, yes, good at first, but, well, we're nearly a year on. And what's actually been done about it? In midweek, Glenn Kamara of Rangers was horrifically racially abused by Slavia Prague players, and Slavia Prague completely refused, and the authorities refused to even exist the fact that it happened. He's had to release a statement through his solicitors, a lawyer. It, this is why Zaha is sick of it and refuses to kneel. Because there's nothing being done, because of the total opposite of articles like the one that you tweeted out, Hanu, of celebrating when players refuse to kneel. It was just it's unfathomable how anybody could 
get that take and think that that's why Zahar is kneeling. He's, he's doing the opposite. It's because he's so frustrated that it is, it, it's becoming an empty gesture from his point of view that, yes, everyone kneels, but in reality, what's actually been done to stop racism in the last year since the first time they kneeled since the George Floyd incident? It's For him, he sees it as now pointless, not as the antithesis of that, as, as a way to, as because it was a, a Marxist organisation. Like, shut up. Yeah, exactly. It's I, uh, I don't know if we can. I think we've probably toiled this ground too far. But Richard, anything final to add on the on the kneeling debacle and Black Lives Matter and so on? I think you guys have um, summed it all up. Um, I think you've you've mentioned all the main points, and I'm, I'm in total agreement. I'll keep it short. That's I'm in total agreement with um, everything what you guys have just said there. So if we do move on this weekend, the RPL takes a back seat for the aforementioned international break. But the Finnael does in fact carry on. In lieu of this, we'll be covering more Finnael next week on the pod and we're going to skip it today. And coming up on the pod, we do have some exciting guests too, including the voice of the RPL in English, a certain Alexei Yaroshevsky. Hanu, where can everyone find the Whatever This Is podcast and how is the RFN YouTube channel coming along? Yeah, you can um, find us on... Um, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, YouTube as well. Maybe put out like a, a little screen. And our podcast is typically, for if, if anyone hasn't heard it, it's a Russian football podcast, which is very casual. Like we only discuss Russian football for, for 20% of it and just start discussing random things. And um, we're also trying to get a few guests on. But uh, if you go to my Twitter, which is at H4NUU, um, you'll find it as a pinned tweet. Or if you just search whatever this is, Russian football on Google or whatever, I, you'll find it. And yeah, I'd just like to say thanks for having me on again. And uh, yeah, that's it. And Richard, thanks for joining too. And we'll finish off there, Richard, with little congratulations to Wigan, finally finding a buyer for the club. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, it's been it's been a torturous last nine months or so, you know, Um Thankfully, the takeover has been agreed now. It's set to be approved by the authorities in the next few weeks. And just hopefully now we can survive in League One and onwards and upwards from there. Hopefully, rebuild up in a nice, good, sustainable fashion. And um, yeah, but the most important thing is that it's been done now. And just it's a horrible experience these last nine months, what my club's had to go through. And I won't wish it on any club any worse. So thankfully, the nightmare is almost over now. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at um, at richdpike89, at richdpike89. And um, Brace yourselves in the next couple of weeks for some good content on Heart of Football. We're going to start um, an official on this on this day series, which looks back at famous football matches, events, etc., from a certain day. And you know the beauty of these articles that were published on the day that they took place in the past. So I'm hoping that this series, which um, I've pioneered for the site, will um, really get some um, good views and um, you you enjoy the content for it. So yeah, I just um, just throw that in there. But yeah, absolutely delighted Wigan's been taken over. Fantastic news. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. And for everyone, um, a little quick update on the website. We have now cleared the infected code. We were externally hacked. Not quite sure how, to be quite honest, but the code's now cleared and we are trying to work on getting the site all back together. Uh, I know from the external point of view, it does look all fine. Um, we have managed to get it live again. After I was only I was only down for about a week, so from your point of view, I can understand that you go on the website and everything looks okay, but there is quite a lot of issues with the backups of the site, with the back end, 
uh, we can't access the CMS. There's a lot that's basically been deleted and affected by the hack. So we're working on with our technical partners to get that back up as soon as as soon as possible. Uh, in terms of the podcast, we'll be back at a regular time next Thursday. Until then, this has been the RFN podcast. Goodbye for now. Редактор субтитров А.Семкин Корректор А.Егорова